Okay. Let's do that. All right, everybody. It is dude, you're on to me time. Yep. Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy time. Fellowship is out by the donuts. Coffee's located there as well. It's not that we don't love you. But as always, I have the microphone. You do. I don't know. It was Bill uh, Christ the Rock Church. Really? It's 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 terribly too yeah, it's terribly too common. It really is. Yeah. It's disturbing. All right. The good thing about being in my Sunday school class is that you still have access to the candy canes. Right? No. Uh my wife my wife said you need to shave. And I said, yeah, but I really like my beard. It's cold. And she said, but I really like your face. And I said, you know what? For that, I'll do it. Because I, I wore my facial hair like this for 15 years. So, yeah. Yeah. Tom's wife said that and he grew out a huge beard. <laughs> Good deal. Is there a handout? No, there will be next week. Remember, the handouts for in here are really general because I, I want you guys taking more of what you get from it. Uh, I don't want to go through and just dictate everything and wrote, you know, wrote through the situation. So does anybody want, before we pray and begin, a candy cane? Yes? Okay. You were in children's church, so you didn't get any. You know what, man? You get a Hershey's Kiss on top of that. I've only got one left as far as I know. Roxanne? Oh, come on. Hey. It's your health. Candy cane? Anybody? Anybody? No? No? Okay, just making sure. You know what? I don't know if there's a... Oh, there's chocolate. There you go. See, that's what I am. I'm just buying your sympathies. That's all. Anybody else? One more. One more. Chocolate? Chocolate. There we go. I got one more. Chocolate? Oh, there you go. That would have been hilarious if I threw it and then all of a sudden they all dove on the ground to scramble after it, beating each other. All right. So let's take a moment. Let's pray and we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word and that we have the opportunity to get into Deuteronomy and and just thankful, Father, for uh, what it can teach us, what it shows us, uh, and what it speaks about you and your interaction with people. So, Father, bless this time. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3. We've been off for the past couple of weeks with the holidays, but we're back at it. Uh, I, do we need to give a little refresher up to where we are just to get everybody up to speed? Okay. So, here's what's going on. The book of Deuteronomy is written in the fashion of what is known as a suzerain-vassal treaty. A suzerain is a high king. He is a great king. 
The vassals are not peons and they're not just nothing. The vassals are actually what are considered kings. They just happen to be lesser kings. And the idea of the agreement in a suzerain vassal treaty is, is that the great king will take care of you, provide for you, protect you, guide you, all of these things, if the lesser kings, the vassals, will submit their allegiance unto the great king. This is something that was commonly found throughout uh, Middle Eastern civilizations way back in this time. It wasn't anything odd. It's, it's how God chooses to communicate this message through Moses. And so what happens is, just to give you a brief overview, is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we have a general introduction that Moses gives about where they are, what's going on, and how he is beginning this situation. And then in verse 5, you have a chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 4, verse 40, and we're not that far yet. You have what is known as the historical prologue. In other words, Moses wants to show and remind the children of Israel where they have been and the events that have taken place in order to mentally prep their minds for what's getting ready to happen when they cross over the Jordan and get into the land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everybody with me? Sure you don't want a candy cane? Okay, okay. Well, take some of that hand sanitizer and just squirt it on your tongue. You'll be all right. So. Or Marlboros. Either one. It works either way. So, anyway. I'm from Kentucky. That's a cash crop there. Um, So, in chapter 5, what we deal with is the idea of how God has brought them out. Um... Let's see here. They appointed heads of the tribes. They had the reception of the law. Uh, They met with God at Mount Sinai. They settled mainly in Kadesh Barnea. It became time for them after 11 days to rise up and to go into and take hold of the promised land. And so they sent spies over into the land. The spies saw that everything was just as God had said. But they got scared because of giants in the land. Now, we've referred to those, or Deuteronomy refers to those as Rephaim, Emim, uh, Zimzumim, or the names that they all use, what they called them. But the idea is, is essentially they were huge people. Uh, And if you remember, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, sorry, a month ago, I think it was, we showed some of the pictures of just archaeologically what they found as far as how big the skeletons were buried at that time and those types of things. Very, very interesting stuff that, that, that archaeology totally affirms, and it was written about here. In doing that, you only have four people that are faithful in this entire time. The 12 uh, spies come back from the land. Ten of them give the bad report to the people. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, not a bad report. We can do this. God said we're going to do this. Let's just obey the Lord and let's walk forward in faith and he will fight our battle for us. The other 10 say, shut up or we're going to kill you for that. So anyway, the, 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 the 10 spies who are against the plan to move forward and trust God stir everybody up and they create a rebellion. Because of that, they are judged, everyone 20 years and older, to wander in the wilderness until their bodies fall dead. That is the curse upon them. Their sin, however, is forgiven. God doesn't take their life. He allows them to live. But now Moses has to lead them. So Joshua, Caleb, Aaron, Moses are the four people who stay faithful in that time. And with Caleb, uh, Caleb is actually someone who has promised to have inheritance in the land because of his faithfulness during that time of testing. And Joshua is the one who will succeed 
the rulership, or sorry, not the rulership, the leadership from Moses uh, and take the children into the land. So that's where we're at. Uh, in chapter 2, we have them actually coming into the land. Mitch, you care if we throw a map up that shows the majority of the land? Just to show you what they're dealing with here. But in chapter 2, we have, uh, can we do a bigger one? Bigger map? There we go. Kind of in that area. Uh, so notice, they've come over from this section. Everybody see Goshen up there, the far left? So we know that's where they were dwelling in the time that the they were becoming a nation and they eventually became slaves uh, to Pharaoh in Egypt. But when they leave there, they actually travel down, uh, receive the law, and then they move up into the area and they come up to this side here. Now, this is the Aquabah. I've got to find out where my, my pointer. Ding, 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 ding. There it is. Use a candy cane. So they came up through here. This right here is the Gulf of Aquabah. This area right here is known as the Arabah, okay? And notice that it flows. Here's the Jordan River. Up here's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is also known as the Sea of Kineth, if you ever see that. Uh, I think Kineth is how you say it. Kinseneth, something like that. Uh, anyway, uh, it travels down through here, the Jordan River, into the Dead Sea, or what's called the Salt Sea. And then this is the Gulf of Arabah, or the, or the waters of Arabah, the Wadi of Arabah, they call it that as well, into the Gulf of Aquabah. They come up through this area, they go through Edom, they go through Moab, they go through Ammon, and it's all on this east side that they're dealing with. And this is where we see, just to throw it your way, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, command the people saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, which would be Edom, who live in Seir. And Seir is another name for Edom in that section there. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. God tells them, I'm not giving you their land. It's been set aside for them. They are related to you. Esau being Jacob's brother, they're related to you. Leave them alone. That's their stuff. If you want food, buy it. If you want water, buy it. Leave them alone and keep going. So then we move up into Moab and Moab and Ammon are actually the offspring of Lot after the situation happened at Sodom. And so you have, uh, let's see here, verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the sons of Lot as a possession. And R is a general name, essentially, for this entire section of Moab here. Then we move up into Ammon. Mitch, do we have one that shows like all of this stuff? Can we zoom in maybe on the other one or something? Just something a little bit bigger. There you go. This idea. So notice, this is uh, places we're not going to need to be familiar with. Ammon right here is the other part. Moab down here. Ammon right there. So you look over at chapter uh, 2, verse 19. When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession because I've given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. So all of these lands at one time had been dispossessed with other people coming in and taking the land that wasn't theirs. Remember, if God is serious about anything in Scripture, geographically speaking, it is real estate. He determines who lives where, and he gives that land, and that is yours, and no one is to take it, or they are violating the principles that God has set forward for people. And why does he do that? Remember, he has people born at certain times and has them live in certain places that they live for the maximum opportunity of being exposed to him and knowing him. I know sometimes that sounds foreign 
when I talk to people. But when we talk about the doctrine of revelation from God, not the book of revelation, the doctrine of revelation, there are two types of, of revelation. Does anybody know what they are? General revelation. And that is essentially everything that you can see, right? The sun is in the sky. It got there somehow, and I didn't put it there. So that should lead me to a conclusion. God revealing himself in nature. Uh, when you break down what a cell looks like, there's more information in a cell than there is in all the libraries of the world put together. That's just astounding. But it's all fine-tuned mechanisms. How does all that happen? God puts it all together. It all works that way. So that's a general revelation. Special revelation would be when somebody comes in contact or encounter with the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, be enslaved and oppressed for hundred years. Now, of course, this is talking about Egyptian captivity. This is what we're leading up to when we're dealing with it during Sunday during the sermon, right? So we're, we're in prime position for that to happen. But notice verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. Why? Because the, the people, the nation of Israel is not exempt from their actions. That is important. They are acting as themselves. Let me give you a, for instance, we saw how the Pharaoh in Joseph's time received the people pretty willingly, right? Here, give them this land and even put them in charge of my stuff. If they're, if they're really good at what they do, I want them doing stuff for me. But wasn't the Pharaoh in Moses' time very different? Yeah, kill all the little boys, right? Very, very different demeanor there. So notice, responsible for your own actions. I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out. Now, is that not what God promised to Jacob, I will go down to Egypt with you and I will come, I will bring you out again, right? And Joseph will close your eyes. With many possessions. As for you, Abram, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Now pay attention, here's your homework. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the who? Amorite is not yet complete. What I would like you to do is research with whatever you have, internet, bible.org, biblegateway.com, whatever all those things are, or just a Bible dictionary that you might have, or maybe you've got a commentary on Genesis or something, and see if they will give you some information about the iniquity of the Amorites being full. Now, why do I bring that up? Because if we turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, we have a shift in the action. Don't bother the Edomites. Don't bother the Moabites. Don't bother the Ammonites. But, verse 24, chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, verse 24, Arise, set out and pass through the valley of Arnon, which has a river that separates it. Is it up there? Uh, I think it's down here where the border of Reuben is, uh, down there where it starts the border of Reuben. Uh, the valley of Arnon. And notice what it says. Look, I have given Sihon the who? The Amorite, Genesis fifteen sixteen, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Yet, yet, here comes the children of Israel traveling up the east side of this land here. And the two kings they're going to deal with is Sihon of the Amorites and Og of Bashan, who is also an Amorite. What does it mean for the iniquity of the Amorites to be full? Because here's what it seems like, okay? And this is extremely interesting to think about and to think about what we're dealing with in America and how we govern ourselves, okay? It seems like that each nation is giving a threshold. Or let's think of it this way. 
each nation is given a cup. And as they commit iniquity, walk away from the Lord, involved in falsehood, deceit, whatever it is, that cup starts to fill up. And there comes a point where that cup gets to the brim, and right before it spills over, the Lord comes in and he judges it. And he judges it to the ground. In fact, all of this mistakes, mess up, and filling of the cup, honestly, is his grace, is what it is. Because all it would take is one drop for him to come in and just take everybody to Jesus real quickly if he wanted to, right? But uh, who knows? That's a good thing to ask, though. It's a really good thing to ask. Here's the reason why. And I'm not like a date setter or anything like that. But we know we're closer to the end than when we were 20 years ago. We know that the world's gotten increasingly worse as far as what it's accepting than it was 20 years ago. And we also know that America is not mentioned anywhere in prophecy. So that should be pretty frightening for all of us to understand. America's Cup might be getting full right now. Who knows? Who knows? I'll tell you this. This this is the honest-to-goodness truth. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but if it does, and hopefully you'll think about it. The more connection that Bible-believing and I mean Bible-believing, conservative Bible-believing, yes, this is the Word of God, inerrant, infallible, connection that we try to group ourselves with politics. We are shooting ourselves in the foot. We have trusted in something that is the most foolish thing ever. God puts people in power. God takes people out of power. You're not a Christian because you voted for Trump. You're not, a, you're not a, going to hell because you voted for Hillary. I mean... Some people get so wrapped up in that. And what you actually do is, is you create divisions within the body of Christ of people who should be your brother and sister. If somebody wants to follow me on Twitter, I always go and see where they're coming from, whether or not I want to follow them back. And usually one of the first things I see on their page is, is how Trump got it right here and Hillary got it wrong here and Barack Obama did this. And Man, who cares? We have so much better things to be thinking about and consume our minds with than all this other stuff. You listen to that stuff too long, you realize, and the enemy really is just pulling the wool over eyes. He really is getting us off the path of what really, truly matters in this life. So anytime that we get all caught up in the politics of things like that, it gets so, so dangerous. Where's America in this? I don't know. But I will tell you this, by researching what that might mean, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, because we know that when it gets full, what's going to happen? I'm going to bring you out of the land. I'm going to bring you to these people. You, Abraham, your descendants are going to be God's instrument of judgment that brings this judgment against the Amorites when their iniquity gets full. What's that? Harem? Yeah. Harem? Exactly. Yeah. Devoting them to destruction is what it means. Utterly wiping them out. Now that brings us to the next thing that we were dealing with. Anyway, that's your, that's your homework. It'd be good for us to have a short, maybe 15 minute discussion about what did we find about iniquity becoming full? Do we see it anywhere else in the Bible? That'd be, that'd be good stuff to, to talk about. Uh, but then that's when we come to this idea of holy war or what's also known as Yahweh war. And it's the idea that, that civilizations have become so sinful that they refuse to repent. They are unredeemable unto the Lord. Uh, not because he has disqualified them, but because they have disqualified themselves by their actions. Uh, they are a godless society. They've become a blight and they've become poison. Uh, and actually, in some situations, you'll read, they've actually defiled the land. 
that the, 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 whenever this comes in and there is this holy war that is enacted against them by the nation of Israel where Yahweh fights as the great warrior on their behalf and it says such amazing things as kill every man, woman, and child, leave nothing alive, do not intermarry with any of them, do not make any covenants or contracts with them whatsoever, wipe everything out. When that happens, you actually find that it's a catharsis for this land because they've defiled it. God is very serious about that plot of land. It's the center of all the universe. So that's very important to understand. Um, see here, so we have verses 25 of 2, uh, putting the dread in, into uh, the people, coming in, occupying, possessing the land. Sihon, the king, is overthrown. Sihon of Bashan. And so you have this, this uh, or sorry, Heshbon right there. Uh, Sihon of Heshbon right there is Heshbon. This later becomes Reuben. We're going to talk about that today, Gad. And then right here is the eastern part of Manasseh. Here's the western part of Manasseh that takes up. Uh, up here is a place called Bashan. Uh, this leads up. This is called Gilead right in here. Notice Jabesh Gilead. This region right here is called Gilead that goes up and Bashan's in the top of it. And so you have uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, with all of his people, came out to meet us at the battle of Edri. Uh, and Edri is a valley, uh, where is it? Right here that you deal with. So uh, they go in, they conquer that. Verse 6, we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the animals and the spoil, the plunder of the cities we took as our booty. Thus we took the land at the time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites. That is important. And if you want to put a little marking there in your Bible, Genesis 15, 16. This is a fulfillment of what God pronounced. And notice that God has his handle on time. It's amazing to think that we worship a God who is not bound by time, who has no restriction in time, that he actually sees all facets of time at one time to him. And yet he operates in time for our benefit. Why? Because he's constantly proving his faithfulness. I pictured it like this. Let's say that, Back in Dwayne's corner, let's say there's a parade going on. And back there, he's seeing the beginning of the parade come along. Over here in Chuck and Roxanne's side, right here is going to be the middle of the parade, what's going on. And down here on this side, myself, what's your name? Exactly. Uh, and Eli, we're, we're actually in the back of the parade. Maybe we're, maybe we're seeing the Santa Claus at the end kind of thing of this parade that's going on. Dwayne's going to have a perspective of things that Chuck and Roxanne don't have, and, and, and they're going to have a perspective that Eli and myself do not have. But what we find is, is the way that God looks at the parade is he sees beginning and, and middle, or beginning, middle, and end all at the same time. So the scope of time is not, is, is not uh, dragging him down or restricting him in any way. And it's very interesting to think about the concept of time as far as God is concerned in relation to the cross of Christ. Was Abraham's sins covered by Jesus' blood? You see what I'm saying? Something to think about that. Well, Jesus hadn't died yet. How's that possible? Concept of time and how God operates in it. Very important to think about those types of things. So anyway, moving where we are in this section right here, are there any questions? Any questions about what we've looked at first two and a half, three chapters? We're going to pick up in chapter three, uh, verse 8, because it's a summary, and then we're going to hopefully move forward, and, and maybe we can complete the chapter today. I don't know. Everybody good? Yes, sir. Esau lost his birthright. He inherited some land. He didn't inherit the promised land, 
but he inherited a plot of land. He's, he's actually to the, uh, what would it be, southeast of the Dead Sea. So he's, he's, not a, he's not in the land of Canaan. He's not Canaan in between what would be the Jordan River and the Mediterranean there. God still blessed him. In fact, if you read the account of Esau, this is why I hate so many people drawing these crazy conclusions about Esau. Oh, well, because Esau was foolish and he acted in a godless manner and he forfeited his birthright, therefore Esau wasn't saved. We are so quick to judge people's salvation based on the dumb things that they do. Praise God he doesn't do that to me. You know, praise God that he is more gracious, gracious than my judgment of, of a lot of people. Uh, what you find is, is that, yeah, Esau totally knew God. In fact, whenever Jacob and Esau come back together, it's a, it's a harmonious reunion uh, that they have. And there doesn't seem to be anything odd that would lead us to think that he's a pagan. And also, to go a little bit further than that, even though Ishmael is the progenitor of the Arab race and what we know today as the Muslims, Ishmael was a believer. He was saved. There's nothing in the scripture to direct us any other way. It actually says when he died, he was gathered to his fathers, just like Abraham. So there's, there's nothing that should lead us in the direction. We're so quick to think saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved, when the scripture never really gives us that. So good question, good question. Any other questions? All right, verse 8. Thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Now remember, the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Mitch, can we zoom back? I apologize, or zoom out so we can see this entire expanse. This right here, the Valley of Arnon, right there's the Arnon River, all the way to, everybody see Mount Hermon? All of this section here, and we're going to see Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Salt Sea, Dead Sea. It serves as like a border, and they conquered all this stuff out here. They left Moab alone, Edom alone, Ammon alone, but they did conquer out into this region we're going to find out. So they actually took all of this stuff right here. This was their boundary. 140 miles long. 140 miles. From Bashan alone, or from, from the realm of Bashan alone, from King Og, at one time they took 60 cities. 45, fortified cities, guarded cities, well-to-do cities. And they came in and the Lord fought for them and they overthrew all of that. That's in verse 5. So notice it says here, verse 9, Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Sinir. In other words, it's clar they're, they're clarifying the geographic boundaries for you. Whoever was the editor of Deuteronomy after it was written went in there and put that in there. Verse 10, all the cities of the plateau and all of Gilead and all of Bashan. Now again, right here, Gilead. This section, Bashan, up in here. Everybody see Dan up there? Dan's a rascal, man. Uh, that city of Dan. Dan's inheritance is actually down here. But if you want an interesting thing to research sometimes, here's their inheritance. For some reason, they didn't find that satisfactory in Judges chapter 18. And so they travel up here. They find a land that is unsuspecting, that is part of Manasseh. They come in. Nobody's around. People are just peaceful doing their own thing. They kill them all rename the city Dan, and they take it over there. And I believe because of that, that's the reason why Dan is not mentioned in the recounting of the 12 tribes in Revelation 7. I believe that Dan forfeited his opportunity of inheritance to be represented 12,000 as part of the 144,000, which are not Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? The, 
The J-dubs have no claim on Revelation 7, so don't listen to that. Um, so moving on. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Bashan, as far as uh, Salakai, Salakai is also known as Salkad. Uh, it is a later part of Gad. Let me see here. It's located 45 miles east of Ramoth Gilead. Uh, Ramoth Gilead is right here. See this? If you were to go 45 miles over here, they even took that city right there. So it branched out into here and came back. That's how, that's how big this conquest was. Uh, this is what the Lord did. Uh, cities of the kingdom of Og of Bashan. Verse 11, for only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Remember, those are giants. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Uh, so notice it's, it's kept in Ammon. It was there as a trophy. Uh, its length was nine cubits. It was 13 feet long. And its width was six cubits, four cubits, or six feet wide, four cubits by ordinary cubit. Uh, there's some people that believe that this wasn't necessarily the bed that he rested in. They believe that it was his coffin that they buried him in too. Some people say that the idea of bedstead could actually be his final resting place. So they, they either had the bed that he slept in that was 13 feet long and six feet wide or his coffin that was 13 long and six feet wide that they had kept as a trophy of them conquering him because he was a giant of what God could do. So, verse 12, so we took possession. What does that mean? What does it mean to take possession in Deuteronomy? Inheritance. We inherited this. We took this inheritance of the land at the time. Now remember, all of this was dispossessed at some point. People came in. In fact, we saw one group that came in. I believe it was Sihon who came in at Heshbon. He was actually originally from Crete and was descended from the Philistines. So they have all this interaction, uh, all, this, all this melding together, crazy family trees. It's not all straight up and down like it is in Kentucky. It's all over the place. Um, notice, so we took possession of the land at that time from Aror, Aror, or you'd think five letters, it wouldn't be that hard to spell, would it, or say. Uh, but notice, that's in the south, which is by the Valley of Arnon. So that's that river down at the bottom of Reuben there. Uh, that, that valley of Arnon. And notice it says here, and half the hill country of Gilead, that's along the Jordan River up the side, and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. Now notice, this is the first distribution of the land. They haven't even crossed over the Jordan River yet. And Reuben and Gad already have their allotments. Everybody see how it goes up in the Gilead portion there? And notice that the river acts as a boundary in the situation. They haven't crossed over yet, but they're starting to distribute the land as inheritance. Now, now pause for a second before we move forward. Coming in, they conquer 140 miles of this space. And in doing so, they go ahead and they decide to distribute the land. There's reasons for it. I'm going to show you. But why do you think that them coming into this section, remember, it's the second generation out of the Exodus the first generation fell in death because of disobedience. They come in and immediately they start distributing land. What would be some reasons why you would do that if you were Moses? What do you think? Stability? Why is that? What do you think? Expound a little bit on that. <laughs> I have the microphone. What do you think?
Notice that. That's exactly right. Remember this. Were these guys fighters? Were they trained warriors? No, they were, we don't have any place to live. All we've done is build temples and walls. And, right? I mean, they were, they were all masonry people. They didn't have any, any, any skill in hunting or tactical battle plans or anything like that. They had none of that stuff. And here they come with the Lord fighting with them. And now they get into here. They, they destroy 140 miles of land. And then they, okay, now you take this group. You guys settle out here. You guys take this group and settle out here. Can you imagine like uh, the guys over there, Simeon, Judah, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, they're all sitting there going, man, this is looking pretty sweet, right? They're setting up shop. They didn't build that house. They're living in that house. Way to go on getting that house, right? That's an encouragement. That is a little taste. It's a, it's a first fruits of what is possible to come is the idea. Now, do me a favor here. Take your Bibles. We're not going to get through this today, man. Uh, no, nobody surprised but me, right? Turn back to Numbers 32. Of course we're not going to get through it. Numbers 32. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Because this is the actual event in real time. Remember, Moses is giving them a synopsis of what has happened in order to get them mentally prepared for what needs to happen moving forward into the land. So he's recounting this event. Chapter 32 of Numbers, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben... And the sons of Gad, those are the first two that got that plot of land, right? Had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock. In other words, it was set up for them to continue doing business fruitfully, is the idea. It's advantageous. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Deban, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elelah, Sebam, Nabo, and Baon. Now, we don't need to know where all of those places are located, but what do we know? You can find Jazer a little bit. It's in the middle there. Heshbon, we know from Sihon, king of Heshbon, part of the Amorites, right? So we get an idea of where he's talking about. The land, here it is, verse 4, the land which the Lord conquered, before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. In other words, I love the fact that they say, you know, that land that the Lord just smote everybody that he gave to us, it's perfect for what we need it for to continue doing the family business. Can we have it? We won't cross over into the Jordan and take any of that land. Can we have it? Now, I want to show you something really interesting. In chapter 32, uh, I turned prematurely, but in chapter 32, look towards the end of the chapter. Look over in uh, verse 29, because here's the temptation, right? You come into the land. Hey, give us this plot of land. You know what? You guys have a lot of livestock. I can see how this would work out for you. Yeah, you guys go ahead and settle. Great. You guys have fun. Have fun crossing that Jordan. Wouldn't you feel bad if that happened? You start a project like that, you get into it, some guys start to reap the benefits, and then they pass off the scenes. Would that discourage you? Yeah, it probably would. But he's enjoying his stuff. How come I can't get mine? Kind of thing. So notice, Moses comes up with a brilliant plan for how to deal with this. It's great. Verse 28. 
Chapter 32 of Numbers 28. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun. Why? Because he's the next one coming up in command. And to the heads of the fathers, notice, households of the tribes of the son of Israel. In other words, every head of the household of the tribe was given this information so that they could communicate it down to all of their people. Moses said to them, verse 29, if the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, everyone who is armed for battle, will cross with you over the Jordan in the presence of the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. If they go over and they fight with you so that you conquer your portion of the land, they will get the land that they've requested. But, verse 30, what if they don't go? If they will not cross over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. Now, does everybody see what Moses just did? They said, hey, guys, can we have this land? Moses said, I can see how it'll work out for you. But you might get in there and start kicking your feet back on the autumn and watching football and just completely check out mentally and not help your brothers conquer the rest of the land. So here's what we're going to do. If all of your able-bodied men will get up and take your weapons and come over and conquer all of this stuff, when that is conquered and they are able to settle, you can go back to that land and that land is rightfully yours to settle. However, if you do not do that and decide you're going to be slothful and cash out, you won't get this land and you will actually find your possession over here in this land. Now, what does that do to everybody who's inheriting on that side? Sardines, right? Everybody's all crammed in a tight space. What in the world is Gad and Reuben doing here, those guys? That's what happened. So they lose out on the abundance of what normally be their possession. Can you imagine trying to fit all of this geography, this blue and green geography, into this situation? You're asking for problems. So notice, it's advantageous for Gad and for Reuben and for the other ten tribes if Gad and Reuben's able-bodied men go with them so that everybody gets an allotment, everybody gets spread out, everybody has the opportunity to be prosperous. Does everybody see how that works? Very wise on Moses' part so that nobody cashed out early. Very good. So now let's turn back to Deuteronomy 3. It says here, verse 13, the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, remember Bashan's up north, the king of Og, uh, I, uh, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh all the region of Argob concerning all Bashan. It is called the land of Rephaim. So in other words, everywhere where the giants used to live up north in that region was given to Manasseh as a possession. Now, here's the reason why it's important to get this, this, this idea. This idea of inheritance that's already taking place is giving evidence of what Yahweh can do. It, uh, the disadvantage that we run into sometimes is when we see all these amazing things that have happened in the Old Testament, we kind of leave them in the book because fiction has trained our minds to do that, right? Well, that's, that's what that says, but that might not be reality. And what we do is we discount the truthfulness of Scripture. Don't make that mistake. Realize that the same God that delivered land to them, that conquered, that went forward for them is the same God that you worship now. It's the exact same God. He has not changed. He does not change. His promises are still steadfast. That is really important for us to grasp that as we see this branching out and this moving in. Verse 14, Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Gesherites and the Machathites 
and called it, that is, Basham, after his own name, Havaf-Jer, as it is to this day. And the idea is that that word means villages of Jer. Uh, Jer is actually the uh, grandson of a guy named Makir mentioned in verse 15. To Makir, I gave Gilead. Makir was a prominent figure uh, in the scriptures. First uh, Chronicles chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, if you want to read just a little bit more about their relationship. But Jer is his grandson. He ended up being the one who led the charge on behalf of the tribe of Manasseh in order to conquer all that region. So it identifies him as kind of the general or the point man on that mission to take all that stuff. Verse 16, to the Reubenites and to the Gadites, I gave from Gilead, even as far as the Valley of Arnon, the middle of the valley as a border, uh, and as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the sons of Ammon. So notice the border of the sons of Ammon. Here's the border on this side. Jabbok is a river that flows uh, let's see here, right in here, I believe it is, that's river. The Arnon uh, that's going to separate the Arnon River. Is that the Arnon? Yeah, it is. Sorry, it's so hard to see. This section right here, so notice it serves as boundaries that we're dealing with here. Got you. The Arnon River down here. God is very particular. He's very meticulous about what you take and what you don't take. What is yours, what he is giving you, and what he is not giving you because it belongs to somebody else. Ownership is a big deal. It is a very big deal to God. Uh, So that's how he sets that up. Look at verse 17. Uh, The Arabah also with the Jordan as a border. So remember, the Arabah is this area down here. Everybody remember that? The water that flows all the way up, even into the Jordan. Uh, That's the idea he's communicating here. As a border from Shinnereth. Now everybody see that? It can also be spelled K-I-N-N-E-R-E-T-H. So essentially the same except for the C-H expelled with a K. That is what's known as the Sea of Galilee. Okay, that's the Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee that we understand in the New Testament. So notice, from the Chinnereth up north, even as far as the Sea of Arabah, notice that's down here that we're dealing with, that flows into the Gulf of Aquabah. Uh, it says here, the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah uh, on the east. Now, Pisgah is a very interesting place uh, and we're not going to be able to see why. Uh, Mitch, can you scroll down just a little bit? Is it possible to bring it down some? Yeah, like I need to go up. I need to see above Reuben. Max can do that, can't they? Making sure. So uh, everybody see Mount Nebo right here? This is Mount Nebo. Mount Pisgah is located right here. I think it's just a little bit southwest of it right here. The reason why Mount Pisgah is important is because Mount Pisgah is the mountain that Moses goes up to, that God tells him to go up to, so he can look over this area and he can see into what will be the promised land, though he doesn't get to cross over. So we started a little late. Let me hold you just a couple minutes more. Verse 18, Then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess it, to inherit it. All your valiant all you valiant men, the word there is able-bodied, those who are fighters amongst your group is the idea, shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel, but your wives and your little ones and your livestock, and it's kind of funny, this this, uh, comment here. I know that you have much livestock. Wasn't that just what we saw in Numbers 32? You guys have a lot of cows, right? So, Notice, I know you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities that I have given you until 
Here's the time period. The Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you. And they also possess, they also inherit the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan. Then you may return every man to his possession, which I have given you. In other words, God providing motivations to get the job done. Leave your wife and kids and livestock, your businesses behind in the land. They'll get taken care of. They can continue business as usual. And whenever you're done helping your brothers to where they can inherit, you can come back and enjoy your inheritance. Now, let me say this real quick about that. No, we're not Israel. No, we're not trying to inherit the land, anything like that. But there has been a move. It seems like over the past 25, 30, and even from what I can find, 40 and 50 years, since the 60s, it seems like, the Beatles screwed up everything, man. They really did. Uh, But there seems to be this move within the, the, the Christian church to become individuals instead of a body, a community corporate entity that has been put together the idea of the church is so vastly important because it is brothers and sisters living life together let me ask you the question let's say we all show up next sunday and and this place is burned to the ground i mean it's just smoldering smoke ashes everywhere done how would you respond to that whose house is big enough That's really the question. Would we still have church? You see what I'm saying? And why is that? Because the church is not a building. The church is people. I love the idea that God is saying here essentially through Moses, everybody work together. Get the job done. Do your part. Know your role in the tribes and help get the job accomplished. Why? So that when you get the job accomplished on behalf of your countrymen, your fellow brother, You can then enjoy what God has in store for you. That concept is no different for the church. Participating in the idea of discipling people, this whole idea of what it is to love people to life in Christ, it is a community affair. It is a corporate makeup that we have here. I know the word corporate sounds so business. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm saying it is a conglomeration of all of the individuals who make up the totality of the body of Christ that God once represented to portage local here immediate to represent his name to be the body of which the head moves in order to make things happen it's not a crusade of just one person with a water pistol going against the gates of hell it doesn't work like that so i think it's important when we see this idea the inheritance can be had by everybody working together it's no different from right now our inheritance can be had by us all working together as a body let's pray thank you god for deuteronomy for the example you show um, for how you move people and how you cause them to work together how you give them the opportunity uh, to live lives that they would not otherwise live so father please bless um, this study to our hearts and minds pray to god that you recall it to our memories later so it will be beneficial for your name. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Two things before you check out mentally. Uh, number one, in fall of 2018, if I were to do a class on the art and science of Bible interpretation and how to study your Bible, 
Would anybody be interested in attending something like that if we did it like on a Monday night? Okay. I've got a lot of materials coming and I'm developing the course right now uh, to put it together. Uh, and also, uh, there's going to be next week on Sunday available 40 copies of a brand new book that's come out that I helped to write called Let the Text Speak. And it's all about the field of hermeneutics. Does everybody know what hermeneutics is? It's not a guy named Herman Nudix, okay? That's not that guy. Uh, he's not running for office or nothing. Uh, hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. How do you go about reading the scriptures and understanding the scriptures? What do you look for? Why do you look at it a certain way? Uh, there will be 40 copies of that uh, that Vern thought it would be a good idea to order, and they're free. So they're just going to be out there for, for the taking. Um, so if you want to donate something, that way we could turn around and order more. Uh, that, that would be good. But if you don't want to and just take it for free, please, by all means, take it, read it. But we'll be using that in the class uh, in the fall. So it would be helpful. Uh, another thing is, is would you mind to please, uh, if we could just take this row over here and move it over for Awana, and let's leave this row because we're having the movie night tonight. Uh, maybe we could end up moving some of that forward or if we want to take, you know, like from the fifth row back and check those out over there so we still have it because we're going to be using the screen, the speakers, all that stuff. So could we do that before we leave, please? Is that good? Thank you. Awesome.